Um, but as you're turning to Galatians chapter 6, uh, why don't we just take some time right now to pray for Alan and the midweek service. And if you need a Bible, you can slip up your hands and the leaders will get you one. But let's pray for tonight and let's uh, pray for Alan on Wednesday night and then we'll get into our study. Father God, we come before you now and thank you. Um, we thank you that you're a God who is living and who speaks. You're not just a God who came down to earth and lived the perfect life and was crucified, but you were resurrected. Uh, and we praise you for that and we thank you. And I pray that that's what we would find our salvation in. And so, Lord, um, just pray for the message this evening. We pray that we would all be encouraged by it, Lord. But we also pray for Alan in preparation for Wednesday. We, we thank you that you're faithful to speak to your people. And we thank you that you place burdens on people's hearts and that you speak through people. And we pray that you would do that for Alan on Wednesday and for the body here on Wednesday. Just encourage him where he needs encouraging. Father God, guide him where he needs guidance. And pray that ultimately on Wednesday, your words would be spoken to the congregation here at Calvary and that your spirit would move in hearts and that repentance would happen, that change would happen, Lord God, that people would realize that you're a God who loves them and that their actions would reflect that, Lord God. So we just praise you this evening. We pray that you would go before this Bible study. We pray it all in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. If you still need a Bible, you can raise your hand. We have a couple leaders that are going to come around and um, pass them out to you. Like I said, we'll be in Galatians chapter 6. Is there anything I can do to help you, Rory? Because I feel like echoey up here. Maybe it's the monitors, I don't know. Anyway, so the book of Galatians is all about not distorting the gospel. So Paul constantly, as he speaks through the book of Galatians, he's encouraging the Galatians, hey, you, you might have things wrong here, and here's kind of what you're doing right. But ultimately, the theme is about not distorting the gospel. And I hope for those of you who have heard messages from me before, uh, it, when when I'm teaching, I constantly try and point deliberately and very clearly back to the gospel and how things point back to Jesus. Because if we lose sight of that, we've lost sight of uh, pretty much everything. And so I figure if Paul's wrapping up the letter to the church in Galatia with uh, this sixth chapter, um, then that would be a cool way for me to kind of end my time with you guys here in New Jersey, kind of similarly. Um, so, for those of you who don't know me, it's just another Bible study for you. Uh, for those of you who do know me, it, hopefully it's just another Bible study for you. Um, but let's get into the Word um, together. So, the Gospel, for those of you who may not know what the Gospel is and need a refresher, it's that after Adam and Eve fell, or after man fell, Jesus, the Gospel is all about what Jesus has done for us. So, Jesus came down, right? He lived, He died, and He resurrected. And so He did that for what we would never be able to do for ourselves. So lots of people hear the good news, and what we end up doing is, we end up thinking, well, the good news is that I've figured it out. That I have this God guy on my side who's going to help me to behave morally. He's going to help me to uh, make sure I'm doing the right thing. Uh, and we think to ourselves, well, the good news is that the person that I used to be is gone, and now I am a new person. And there's truth in that. As a believer in Jesus Christ, the old is wiped away, right? We put on the new body. But if we limit the gospel to the fact that, well, we were one person and now we're a new person, now it becomes about what we have done 
rather than about what Jesus Christ has done for us. So the good news is that God has imputed to us. You guys know what imputed means? Imputed means he's given to us through someone else. So he's imputed to us through Jesus Christ a righteousness that we would never be able to get to on our own. All of our striving, even at our best, wouldn't even be close um, to doing what's needed to bring us into heaven, to bring us into fellowship with God. So I know lots of us think about ourselves. I think about myself, and it's like, well, on my average day, I do pretty decently. But think of yourself on your best day, right? You're doing everything right. You're reading your Bible. You're praying. You're helping the grandma across the street, right? And you're doing everything right, right? Everything's just all not about you. God says even those works that you're doing in your own power are like filthy rags. So, but somehow we look at those works and we can tend to think that that is what is pleasing God. That that is, what is bring, what's bringing us righteousness. So the Gospel is called the Gospel or the Good News because in Jesus Christ we're viewed as perfect in God's sight. And it's not because of anything that we have done on our own. So we don't celebrate that we used to do A and now we do B. Our celebration is that God counts us as righteous despite what we may have done in our past. You guys ever think about this? Like God likes you. He doesn't just put up with you, but He likes you. He loves you. So I know lots of times I tend to look at my own life and I go, well, if it feels like God's just kind of putting up with me and then one day I'm going to pass away and I'm going to go to heaven and that's where we're really going to embrace each other and love each other and that's where the connection is going to happen. God looks at me today because of what Jesus Christ did in my life as holy and righteous. Now I will be the first to tell you because of my works I am not a holy or righteous person. And that right there is the miracle of the Gospel. That because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, I am seen as holy and righteous, despite the fact that I know because of my actions, I am not holy or righteous. So with that in mind, uh, we're going to kind of start going into Galatians. But here's what happens when the good news or the Gospel is presented. It's kind of like you get to the top of a pyramid. There's two slippery slopes that we can go down. The first side, if you're taking notes... The first error, and this is a big error in the church, is the error of legalism. Okay? This is the gospel that's not actually the gospel at all. We try and help Jesus save us as if what he did on the cross wasn't enough. And so we think to ourselves, well, there's things that I want to do better so that I feel better about me. Right? So maybe you've had a dirty mouth, maybe you have lustful eyes or a lustful heart, maybe you think the wrong things, maybe you're going out partying, just kind of doing the wrong things, and you want to fix these things so that you feel better about yourself, because you know you're not supposed to be doing those things. Now, the intent or the heart to not want to do those things is not a bad thing, but to think that we need to clean ourselves up or help Jesus in His atoning work is blasphemy. If you guys don't know what blasphemy is, it's completely not in line with the good news. It's not in line with the gospel. We're off base once we start trying to do that. So if you attempt to earn the favor of God with your behavior, you'll never be able to earn it. Because what you've actually done is you've enslaved yourself to yourself. You've decided that I need to do whatever it takes to become a better person. And that's what Scripture says the opposite about. Scripture says, because of my faith in Jesus, I will look to Jesus Christ to overcome. 
if you guys want, you could turn, uh, put a finger in, in Galatians 6. 1 Corinthians 10.13 For there is no temptation that has overtaken you except that which is common to man. But God remains faithful in that time of temptation. He will provide the way of escape that you may be able to overcome it. The promise is that when we encounter temptations, when we encounter trials in our life, it's one of the first verses I memorized, by the way, or highlighted in my Bible. Not that we would be able to overcome it in our own power, but that God would provide the way of escape. So right there, it goes from us making our own way out to Jesus Christ providing that way out for us. And the second error is an error of license or licentiousness. That you can do whatever you want and God's going to forgive you anyway in the end. So we think to ourselves, well, in the end I'm going to get to heaven anyway because I'm better than the guy over there. I'm better than that kid I go to school with. I'm better than my next door neighbor. I'm better than whoever it may be. We compare ourselves to each other rather than to a holy and just God who demands perfection. And we can't meet that perfect standard. And again, that's why we need Jesus Christ. So in the end... We don't make a good God. But what we're saying with licentiousness, or what we're saying with this license, right? When you get a license, you're able to drive. What we do with our license that we make up is we say, well, I really know how it works when it comes to life. I really know how it works when it comes to school. I really know how it works when it comes to relationships or how how it works with my parents. And what God says throughout Scripture isn't even close. So what you do is you take the place of God in your life. And that right there is a declaration of rebellion against God. That you think you're better than God. That what God said in Scripture, what God has said through mentors in your life is not good enough or that it's not correct. Okay. So what happens when you, and when I say you right now, I mean as a group, believe in the Gospel. And not just know it. Because we know lots of things. Okay? I could feel like I know Derek Jeter because I know he's number two. I know he plays for the Yankees. I know he was born in New Jersey. I know he was drafted out of Michigan. But I don't know Derek Jeter. And for some of us, that's how our relationship with Jesus Christ may be. Well, I know he existed. I know he died on the cross for me. I know he rose again on the third day. But there's no personal, intimate relationship there. There's no communication on any sort of a consistent basis there. And so I would ask you, do you really know Him? Or do you just know of Him? But what happens when we as a group believe in the Gospel and not just know it, is that a type of community is formed. And if you're not familiar with this, you can look to the book of Acts when the church first comes together. Right? When the Gospel is understood, we serve one another. When the Gospel is understood, we consider one another better than ourselves. We engage in rebuke, brothers and sisters. We're not afraid to talk to each other about sin and struggles in our lives. We bear one another's burdens. And the fruit of the Spirit grows in us. You see the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. And so now we dive into our study here. Galatians 6. Okay, We're going to go into verse 7. So all of that was kind of a bit of background. uh, Ten minutes of background. But he starts off here and he says, Do not be deceived. Now you could stop right there, right? If Paul is saying, do not be deceived, then that means that there's a possibility for deception. Not inception, like the two hour long movie that your head's kind of spinning when you come out of it, right? But deception, okay? He's about to address an area where normally we may think that we're right, but we're actually wrong. That's what deception is, right? So someone deceives you into, I can't even think of an example off the top of my head, which is probably a good thing, because... 
40-minute message becomes an hour-long message. But you guys know what deception's all about. You're fooling someone into thinking that one thing is another thing, or that something's going to happen when it's not actually going to happen. There's nothing more dangerous than thinking we're right um, when we're actually wrong. And I would say that that's especially true when it comes to God. Like, if you're going to be wrong about something, the thing you want to be wrong about isn't God, or how much He loves you, or His relationship uh, with you, or what He desires for you and for your life. And so what is that deception? Continue on in verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Your translation, New King James, I believe says, God will not be mocked or cannot be mocked. The deception is that God would somehow be mocked. This is what we tend to believe. That we could somehow mock God. That somehow God would not have control or that God would have things wrong. And that's impossible. It's impossible. God is eternal. God created. God's not reacting to things up in heaven like, oh boy, things are out of my control right now. And so he's looking down from heaven being mocked by what we do in the Bible. I want to take a real quick look with you at the first mention of mockery in the Bible. You don't need to turn there. I'm just going to refer to it. But it's in Genesis chapter 27. For those of you who don't know the story, it's a story of Jacob and Esau and their father Isaac. This is where mockery is first mentioned in the Bible. And Jacob wants the blessing that his father Isaac is going to give to Esau. So a father would give the blessing to the oldest son. Jacob, in this instance, he wants the blessing and therefore is ready to take it from Esau with his mom's help. Okay? So Jacob wants the blessing that his father Isaac is going to give to Esau. In verse 12 it says, I should explain what he's about to do a bit, right? So Jacob and Esau have differences, right? They obviously have different voices, but their father Isaac is blind. He can't see. All he can do is hear them. And so Jacob, to steal the blessing from Esau, what he's going to do is he puts uh, basically fur on his arms so that he would feel like his brother Isaac, because his brother Isaac was one hairy dude, right? So his dad can't uh, see him, but he can feel him, and that's how he would know the difference between the two. And in verse 12, he goes, Jacob goes, perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. You see, the fear here was that if his father caught him, he would be mocking his father. And in the end, that's what he does. He puts the skin on himself and he feels like Esau did. And he fools his father Isaac and his father Isaac gives him the blessing. Now, there's a difference between God and Isaac. It's a huge difference between God and Isaac in that God will never be fooled by our exterior. God's not sitting up in heaven blind kind of feeling things out and going, oh, you fooled me, I'm going to give you the blessing. He knows what's going on in our heart. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16 real quickly. Just proof of this in case you go, well, I don't really know if God knows my heart. I don't really know if He knows what I'm thinking or if He knows what's going on. 1 Samuel 16, Samuel is going out and he's anointing the next person who's going to be king. And in verse 6, we kind of pick up the story here. 1 Samuel 16, verse 6. When they came... He looked on Eliab, okay, so Samuel's looking for who's going to be the next king. He looks upon one of the sons, Eliab, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed 
is before him. So Samuel looks at this guy Eliab and he looks the part. He looks the part of the man who would be the next king. He's feeling him out, right? Not that he was blind, but everything he sees on the exterior, can feel on the exterior, can hear on the exterior, is the look of someone who fills that role of king. Or we go back to the story of Jacob and Esau. It feels the part of the one who's supposed to receive the blessing. We continue on. It doesn't end there. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man sees on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And then Jesse called on Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And this continues on with each one of the sons until we go down to verse 11. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send him and get him. For we will not sit down till he comes here. Verse 12, And he sent and he brought him in, and now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. So what you see here is that God knows the people's hearts. He's not fooled by the exterior. He's not fooled by that first impression of the first son who comes out and looks the part, sounds the part. And he's not fooled like Isaac was into thinking that someone deserves the blessing who doesn't actually deserve it. But we can think that we're fooling God. We can think that we're fooling Him by trying to earn salvation. In Galatians 6, it says, God will not be mocked, but when we try and earn our salvation... That is mocking God, trying to earn what is freely given. So how is that mockery? Because what you're saying is that you have no need for Jesus. That there's something that you can do that would be able to fool God. And you don't actually need the blood, you don't need the resurrection of Jesus Christ to atone for your sins. You can do that on your own. What you're doing is enough. And I think in our heart of hearts, we know that that isn't true. And then we could also mock again in license. We decide that we're smarter than God or or the promises of God or the Scriptures of God are not true. And so we don't need His forgiveness because we haven't actually rebelled against Him. And some of us may think that in our hearts and that's a dangerous game that you will lose. In fact, if that's the game that you're playing tonight or kind of in your life every day, I'd venture to say you've already lost. You're already you're deceiving yourself at this point because you're not fooling God. And so we continue on. Paul tells us at the end of verse 7, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So Paul says here, you're going to reap what you sow. He doesn't say this part, but he says, uh, in, in essence, if you plant an apple seed, you can expect apples. Now, he's not talking about actual seeds, um, though it's, it's very practical for us. If you plant a seed for an oak tree, you can expect an oak tree. If you plant a seed for an orange, you can expect an orange. If you plant a seed for an apple, you can expect an apple, right? So if I, I, I plant an apple seed, how crazy would it be if oranges sprouted up, right? That's just not what we would expect from a situation like that. 
So whatever you sow, you're going to reap. This is a, a universal truth. This is a universal truth. And so what that means for your life today, you're like, John, I'm, I'm never going to farm. I, I don't care about apples or oranges. right? So what does this mean for my life? Here's what it means. You are here today because what you have historically sown. So your life, the, the consummation of your life, everything put together in your life has brought you to where you are today. The things that you're struggling with, the things that you're dealing with day in and day out, uh, your attitude, the way you speak, the condition of your heart is the result of what you have historically sown in your life. And that's an important point, and it's either a very freeing point, or it's a very um, captivating point. Not in that it captures your attention, but that you'll feel like you're in bondage when you hear that. And we don't like to believe that. What we love to do is place the blame on others. Well, I'm this way because of my mom and dad. They, they raised me this way. Or uh, my genes. You hear that all the time with athletes and people who want to play sports. I just don't have the right genes to play sports. Uh, as if it doesn't involve hard work and training and eating the right way and doing the right things. Or we blame it on our school growing up. Man, if I was only in private school. Man, if I was only in public school. Man, if I was only homeschooled, then I could sleep in and do whatever I want and I would be a totally different person. And so we don't like to hear that the fruit that is coming out of your life is a result of the seeds that you've been planting. That things that you've been harvesting are a result of what you're sowing. I think when it comes down to it, just from knowing you guys over the past few years, we want to be godly. I think that's a constant desire across the board, is that you want to be godly. You want to do the right things, and you want to please the Lord with your life. But for some reason, we're under the, the, the feeling or the guise that one day it's, you're going to magically wake up and be like Christ. And it's just going to kind of happen out of nowhere. Or, or that you would go to youth group and, and that this Friday would be the magical worship set or the magical message that just gets you right with God. Or that this next retreat coming up, man, that's what's really going to set you right with God forever. Um, or when you go to church on Sunday, that Pastor Lloyd's going to have this magical message set up that's just going to totally change your life forever. And we kind of live our lives in that fashion where we're just kind of waiting for something spontaneous to happen where we're just going to be in line with God, and I would say, apart from some Saul to Paul type miracles, that's not coming. The result of your life, the fruit that you reap from the harvest is a result of the seeds that you sow in your life. And so if you want to grow in godliness, what you need to do is be faithful to the opportunities you have to go grow in Christ. So here's the good news, right? So all this can be kind of depressing. John, I'm not sowing the right seeds. I'm reaping the wrong fruit. Here's the good news for you, okay? And the good news for all of us, because this points us back to the gospel. The good news about reaping what you sow is that all you have to do is sow very tiny seeds to get very large trees, right? So if you want to get a tree, there's two ways to get a tree. You can take a tree from someone else, steal it, and plant it in your yard, right? That's way one, number one. That's really hard. Okay? But I think that's how lots of us can approach our faith. So we'll look at someone else and we go, wow, that is a man of prayer. Wow, that's a woman of prayer. She wakes up at five in the morning and prays for two hours. And so we try and take that tree and put it in our own yard. 
And so we go, you know what, I'm going to wake up at four in the morning and I'm just going to pray for two hours. And the chances of that happening or, or being meaningful are, are, are very slim. It's going to be very strenuous on you. I don't know if you're going to get much out of that. But the other way that you can grow a tree in your front yard is just by planting a little seed. Just by planting a little seed. But seeds need time to grow. So here's an example for you, right? We were talking about praying and being in the Word. You've heard the seniors share about that. You've heard Alan talk about coming back to our, our first fruits, coming back to reading and prayer. Imagine praying for 15 minutes a day. Ready for this? 15 minutes a day. That's not a long time. Some of, some of you, if you're like me, you'll lay down on the couch at night. I fall asleep to the TV every night after I watch SportsCenter for the third episode, even though it's the same thing over and over, right? So all of us should have 15 minutes in our day that we could give to prayer. Imagine reading your Bible for 15 minutes a day. 15 minutes a day for 365 days a year. I know you guys are out of school, and there's about to be a lot of math. So just do your best to hang with me. And if you don't get it, I have the notes here, and you can copy them down later, right? I'm not trying to exhaust you guys. But 15 minutes a day, 365 days a year, if I do the math in my head. Just kidding, I did it on my computer. That's 5,475 minutes of prayer. That's four days, four whole days of prayer a year if you spend 15 minutes a day in prayer. Four days out of your 365 days. And that's not including any other, you know, when we do the all-nighter of prayer or when you pray with friends or when you have a time of worship and things like that. If you commit 15 minutes to prayer every single day for a year, you will have spent four days out of your entire year praying. The more you pray, the more you're going to see God work. The more you pray, the more you're going to want to pray when you see God working in your life. You don't need to start with waking up at 3 in the morning. You don't need to take the tree that's in someone else's yard and just put it in yours. Just be faithful to plant a little seed 15 minutes a day. 15 minutes a day starts making up four days of prayer a year. What if we just picked one sentence in Scripture a day and we just chewed on it? We just kept. You guys ever have a, a, a piece of meat that just wasn't real tender, but it was real chewy. You're like chewing on it and get like every last bit of taste out of it. Um, I'm trying to think of something else that's really chewy. Nothing's kind of coming to mind. Uh, any of you ever actually been able to suck on a Tic Tac until it dissolved? I always end up chewing mine and biting it and breaking it. But right, imagine if you just you keep going into this one passage, this one line, until you get every last drip of it, every last bit of it out each day. What does that take? Five minutes right? That would carry a ton of weight in your life. Imagine you start in Proverbs 1 tomorrow, right? The end of Proverbs 1 ends with, whoever listens to me will dwell secure. Just take that one thought. Whoever listens to me will dwell secure. Wow. How much would that help you throughout the day? Just remembering over and over and over again, Whoever listens to me will dwell secure. Whoever listens to me will dwell secure. You're going throughout your day, you're being tempted, and you remember that one little line you read from five minutes of Bible reading. Whoever listens to me will dwell secure. Man, I want to dwell with God. I want to be secure. That comes from less than five minutes of Bible reading a day. That comes from a little seed being planted. So right now we're at 20 minutes a day, right? Which still isn't a huge investment. I know it can sound like a lot if you've started with zero. But again, little seeds. 
Let's go on to reading, right? To, to actually saying, hey, we're going to spend time in Scripture for the sake of understanding Scripture and being able to point Scripture to Scripture. And I, I, I know what some of you are going to say because I've grown up with your generation. And I've talked to plenty of you guys. The first thing that happens is, well, I don't read good. Right? I hate reading. I don't read good. First of all, it's I don't read well. Um, so you've got to get your English right. right? But... Let's talk about reading for a bit. Suppose you read 250 words a minute. We're going to do a little bit more math, right? So the average person reads 300 to 350 words per minute. So I'm, I'm making you guys below average because, like we said, you don't read good, okay? So 250 words per minute. If you decide that you're going to read for 15 minutes a day, just devote 15 minutes a day to serious reading of the Bible, to saying, hey, I want to understand Scripture, I'm not just going to take one little bit and chew on it, which I encourage you to do anyway, but I want to understand Scripture. In one year, you will have spent 5,745 minutes reading your Bible. You multiply that by 250 words per minute, and you will read 1.3 million words per year. That's a lot of words, right? Most books have about 300 to 400 words per page. I know this is a lot of math for you guys. But you take that 1.3 million words per year, you divide it by 350 words per page, and what you get is nearly 4,000 pages per year. Now, if you look in your Bible, my Bible is less than 2,000 words. You can go through Scripture twice in one year by taking 15 minutes a day. Or a big 400-page book, you could read 10 books worth just by taking 15 minutes per day. Imagine if you invested that in Scripture. 35 minutes a day gets you studying the Bible. Seriously studying the Bible. You would go through Scripture twice just by taking 15 minutes a day. Being in communication with God, 15 minutes of prayer, you would have spent four whole days in prayer, in communion with God. And then just five minutes, just five minutes of, hey, I'm going to take one one little line and just focus on that the whole day. Focus on that the whole day. 35 minutes a day gets you doing all that. And I think what the math really shows us is that we're pretty lazy. Right? Math, it, math is math. There's only one right answer until you get to like X's and Y's and squares and graphs and things like that. Right? But basic, basic math is math. One plus one is always two. It doesn't change. Right? And so what those numbers kind of tell us is that we're lazy. We're idolaters. You can read, and you can read well. It's just that we're not fascinated enough with God to read. If I look at my life and I'm honest with myself, when I'm not reading, it's because I'm not fascinated with God. It's because I'm not saying, hey God, you're interesting enough for me to spend my 15 minutes a day with, my 35 minutes a day with. Because when it comes to sports, I read fine. When it comes to your diet, you read fine. When it comes to boys or girls, you read fine. When it comes to movie stars, you read fine. When it comes to friends, you read fine. When it comes to Facebook, you read fine. When it comes to Twitter, you read fine. And then all of a sudden, it comes to Scripture, and I don't read good. I hate reading. Right? But imagine how impactful that 35 minutes a day would be in your life. Sowing little seeds, reaping great trees, seeing what God would do in your life with that time. So the logical conclusion is that there's things we love more than God. 
And, and I don't say that to guilt you, because if I, if I took a poll from the leaders right now, I'm sure every single one of us would raise our hands and that there's things that we love more than God at times. There's things that pull us away from Scripture. There's things that pull us away from prayer. So as I say this to you guys, that the conclusion is that we love things more than God. What I mean is that we love things more than God. We love things more than God. It's not just you. But that focus needs to change because where your affections are, that's where you're going to find your mind going. So continue on here. Verse 8, let's read it again. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So, if you've read earlier in Galatians at all, what you'll learn is that the flesh and the Spirit are opposed to one another. And so what I want you to see here, in where it says, you sow to the flesh, you're going to reap corruption. I don't want you to think like... um, like political corruption, like when, I don't know if you guys follow the news at all, probably not because you don't read good, um, but if you do read it all or if you check things up on the internet, Governor Christie was involved in a scandal and they talked about corruption with some bridge being out and he was blocking traffic and things like that. Um, we're not talking about that sort of corruption. This word for corruption means death, decaying. It's much more serious than kind of uh, getting in someone's way. But the contrary or the opposite of that is if you sow in the Spirit, you will reap eternal life. Eternal life doesn't just refer to the afterlife. What did Jesus say? The thief has come to kill, to steal, and to destroy, but I have come that you may have life and life more abundantly. Not just that we would have eternal life with God in heaven once we pass away, but that each and every day of our life would be lived to its fullest. That it would be lived with the ultimate amount of life flowing through us each and every day. And so, can I ask you guys, if small seeds will reap very big trees, what are you planting? What are you planting? What are you sowing? What have you sown today? What have you sown this week? What are you going to sow tomorrow? And if you think, well, I haven't been sowing anything, chances are you've been sowing to the flesh. And you're going to reap the corruption of the the death, the decaying in your life that comes from that. But verse 9, we read on. It says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So let's kind of get this straight. Lots of times when we do good, it's thankless good, right? We'll do something good and we won't kind of get the response that we want. There was a guy named John Calvin who talked about a lot of different theology. Here's what he said. He said, we are naturally lazy in the duties of love. And many little stumbling blocks hinder and put off even the well-disposed. So basically he's saying, we're lazy in loving others. And even those who aren't lazy and loving others, there's stumbling blocks that come up. And so those who wanted to love others don't do it because of the stumbling blocks. He continues on, We meet with many unworthy, many ungrateful people, and the vast number of the needy overwhelms us. We're drained by paying out on every side, doing nice things all over the place, and our warmth is dampened by the coldness of others. Finally, the whole world is full of hindrances, which turns us aside from the right path. Now, if you think about this, you may be thinking, well, John, you're just kind of down on the world right now. People aren't that bad. But when you really think about it, 
It's true. Lots of our good deeds, lots of the things we try to do well, they, they go unrewarded. Um, <laughs> there's a saying I have with my coach at, at school, no good deed goes unpunished. It feels like even when you do things well that you end up getting punished for it. When you try and help your parents out, sometimes there's backlash because you did something they didn't want you to do uh, anyway. But can I ask you, what's your motivation in doing good? See, God did good to us when we didn't deserve good. And so, when we do good to others, we shouldn't be doing it for uh, reciprocity. Uh, that means we shouldn't be doing good to others because we want them to do good to us in return. It's not do unto others as you would want done unto you, as if you're expecting something back. It's not do unto others um, because you want them to appreciate what's being done. It's do unto others because God did for us. And so we got to think about what did God do for us? What did Jesus do for us? It's not I'm doing good for others for the sake of them giving back for me. Think about this. The ultimate form of doing good, right? This is love that you would lay down your life for one another. Jesus was doing the greatest good deed while the very men that he was doing it for were spitting on him. Right? John 3.16, for those of you who have ever read through the book of John at all, maybe you've just seen this verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes would not perish but have everlasting life. So the very man that was spitting on God or the very man that was nailing Jesus Christ to the cross, that's who Jesus was doing the greatest deed for. And so we take our example from him. We should be doing good for those who can't do anything in return. We should be doing good for those who we don't expect anything back from. The very men who were scarring Jesus' back were the people that He was doing the greatest good for. And that's us. That's us. We were the ones who, who crucified. He died on the cross for our sins. He died on the cross for my sins. He died on the cross for your sins. So as I kind of start to wrap up here, my fear with you guys in leaving, and my, I just kind of my fear in general, is that as I prepare to leave for Florida, like my life was growing up, Christianity was kind of a game for me. And my fear is that it would be a game for people in youth group as well. Uh, that in our lives we would be allowing so much corruption that our hearts wouldn't be in the right place that we would know we don't deserve the blessing. And so what we would try and do is, is fool each other. That we would, for some reason, try and put on the hairy arms uh, as Jacob did. That we would try and steal the blessing that we don't deserve. Or that we would think that we could fool God or that we would think that we could mock God. And what happens with that in playing that kind of Christian game is we fool our friends into thinking that we're doing great with God. Sometimes we fool our family into thinking we're doing great with God. And sometimes you can even fool your pastors or your youth leaders into thinking that you're doing great with God. And maybe you get so good at it that, like, like a me, you start fooling yourself into thinking that you're doing great with God. And that's the most dangerous place that you can be. And I don't tell you that out of, a, out, of a, out of a heart of condemnation that you would be thinking, man, 
my heart's just not in the right place, and I don't even know why I do this anymore. Um, but that you would hear it from a heart of someone who's gone through that, from someone who's played the game. And just understand that God will not be mocked. Right? Do not be deceived, verse 7. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Sow to the Spirit. If I could encourage you with one thing before I leave, it's sow to the Spirit. Those little seeds in your life, those opportunities you get every day, every single second you live is a seed that you get to sow. And just sow it in the right place. If you want to see a certain fruit in your life, sow the right seeds. And I, I truly believe that each and every one of you wants to know God, wants to have an intimate relationship with Him. And so I'd encourage you there. 15 minutes. Start with five minutes in your Bible. Pick out one thing that you can meditate on. Start with 15 minutes of prayer. See what happens in a year. And a year sounds like such a long time from now, but it's such a small investment to start with. So to the Spirit that you would reap life because that's what I want for each and every one of you. That's what every leader in this room wants for each and every one of you. Um, I don't know how many of you are familiar with who all the leaders are, especially the incoming freshmen. Hopefully you can get to meet some of them. As a leader, I felt underused. I wish you guys had used me more. I wish you guys had uh, abused me and kept calling me and texting me and saying, hey, John, you want to do this? Or, hey, John, you know, have you been reading this? Or check this out. I wish you had used me more because my heart for you guys is that I would be able to somehow help you desire God more. And that's partly on me for not reaching out to you guys more, but just know that each and every one of these leaders is available for you. And that they love you and that they want to see you pursue God with everything in your life. And I, I know each and every one of them. I've served alongside them for six years. Uh, six years I've been in youth ministry with you guys, and it's been a joy each and every year, each and every moment of it. But just know, um, none of us is feeling overworked, and when we do, the Lord provides strength for us. So we'll get over it. Okay? But if you need a leader in your life, guys, pull aside a guy. Ask us to pray for you. There's nothing we desire more than to pray with you, pray for you. Ask us what we've been reading, because even if you haven't been reading something, hopefully we have, and we can encourage you uh, in Scripture. Ask us if we want to hang out, because I know I'd love to hang out with you guys. I know lots of these leaders would love to grab a slice to eat and just encourage you uh, in your walk every day. Uh, but most importantly, it's what Jesus wants for you. What Jesus wants for you is that you would sow to the Spirit and that you would uh, reap life. And so that's my message for you guys today. It's just sow to the Spirit because you're not fooling anyone. I mean, maybe you're fooling me. Maybe you're fooling your peers. But you're not fooling the one that matters. God's not blind. He knows what's going on in your heart. But most of all, what we need to understand is that the Gospel... The true gospel, when you understand that, is that you are doing right in your life because of the power that God has given you. Not to earn that power, right? Not that you could earn salvation, but that it's freely given. And so that you just freely live in that. That you would stop being a captive to yourself. And that if you're on the opposite side of the spectrum, right? The licentious side, instead of the legalism side, that you would realize you are in need of a Savior, and that you would just call out to that Savior, whether it be tonight or whenever God decides to humble you. Um, 
I just pray that you would humble yourself so that it wouldn't be God that has to do it because that can end up being painful. And again, I speak from experience there. So I love each and every one of you guys. Um, Nick Dunphy has a slide with uh, lots of my contact info on it. It's my cell phone, my Twitter handle, and a website I started just kind of to uh, blog almost every day while I'm down in Florida. Um, the blog name comes from uh, a quote by a guy like John Wooden. He says, sports, um, sports doesn't build character, it reveals it. I thought that was very fitting. Uh, scripture constantly speaks about character, and so you guys would kind of get to keep up on me day to day if you so found that interesting. So you can go to characterrevealed.com and keep up with what I'm doing down in Florida, or you could tweet at me, or you can uh, text me on my phone, or you could just never talk to me again. And hopefully you get involved with leaders here. Um, but I love you guys. And so if I could pray for you right now, um, that would be awesome. And let's just kind of close out that way. Father God, we, we thank you that you're a loving God. We thank you that you're a God who will not be mocked. I can't imagine serving a God that I could fool. Serving a God where I could put two fingers behind my back and have you guess and you wouldn't be able to figure it out. I thank you that you're so much more powerful than that, God. And I pray that that would be a freeing thing tonight for the young guys and girls here in this room, that we would realize that we're not fooling you, that you get us, that you understand where we're at, and so that we would surrender to that. I pray for those who are very legalistic in their lives, like I was and still am today, that we would realize there's nothing we can do to earn salvation. It's been freely given to us. So I pray that we would live in that freedom, realizing that we have the strength to live for your glory because of what Jesus did on the cross. That we're seen as righteous not because of our righteous deeds, but because of what Jesus did on the cross for us. And then for those of us who just kind of uh, live in freedom and the wrong kind of freedom, I, I pray that we would just realize, Lord, that you, we're yours. We're yours. That you paid a debt you didn't owe. Um, for us. And so I pray that we would be able to see the sin in our lives and see how much we need a Savior and just call on your truth and call on your name even tonight. So thank you for each and every one of these guys and girls and the time that you've given me uh, with them. I pray that you would bless them abundantly, God, and that, I don't know, it, maybe there's one or two tonight or maybe a handful that don't know you, Lord God. I pray that you would capture their hearts that they wouldn't have to experience uh, pain for pain's sake, but that they would experience the love and grace that comes with knowing Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.